0: And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything... yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery Mystery of Everything, Everything, available everywhere you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Your Brain on Facts back catalogue. I'm your host, Moxie Labouche. A little bit of context before the episode begins. For these early episodes, I was still learning to edit the audio. Some of them sound bad because I didn't edit enough, and then some sound worse because I edited too much. Please take the audio quality with a grain of salt and understand that it was growing pains. And now, our feature presentation. There's an image bobbing around in the swirling maelstrom of the Internet, one that's enthusiastically shared by those who look down their noses at the big three Abrahamic religions. It's a photo of an Eastern Temple figure with text that says, This is Ishtar, pronounced Easter. Easter was originally the celebration of Ishtar, the Assyrian and Babylonian goddess of fertility and sex. Her symbols, the egg and the bunny, were and still are fertility symbols. Or did you actually think eggs and bunnies had anything to do with resurrection? After Constantine decided to Christianize the Empire, Easter was changed to represent Jesus. But at its roots, Easter, which is how you pronounce Ishtar, is all about fertility and sex. Oh boy. Where to even begin with this one? My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. This graphic first appeared in 2013 on the official Facebook page of Richard Dawkins' Foundation for Reason and Science, so make room on your plate for a big grain of salt. Let's take it point by point. Ishtar is pronounced Ishtar. That's why we wrote it that way in our alphabet. You could make an argument for a long E sound on the I, like Ishtar, but you'd have to make it pretty compellingly. Ishtar was the goddess of love war, and sex. One aspect of her worship, according to the historian Herodotus, who himself requires a dash of skepticism, was the institution of temple prostitution. It was a sort of mandatory service wherein every woman would make herself available in the temple to male customers, and could leave as soon as she had serviced one client. So the graphic is correct that Ishtar is associated with sex, but her symbols were not bunnies and eggs, but rather considerably more awesome a lion, and an eight-pointed star. Most scholars believe that Easter gets its name from Oyster or Ostara, the Germanic pagan goddess. Ostara is the goddess of spring, a pretty obvious metaphor for resurrection, as well as fertility. Eggs and rabbits are her symbols, not Ishtar's. English and German are in a narrow minority of languages that use some variation of the word Easter in German, Ostern. Most other European languages use one form or another of the Latin name Pasha, which is derived from the Hebrew Pesach, meaning Passover. In French, it's Pâques; in Italian, it's Pasqua, in Dutch, it's Pasen, and so forth. The date of Passover, based on the Jewish lunar calendar, determines the date of Easter. And while Constantine did Christianize his empire, he definitely didn't speak English or German, so he would have referred to the holiday as Pasha. Eggs are a clear symbol of fertility in spring, but what mad genius thought to make them out of chocolate? Compared to the nearly two millennia of Easter's existence, chocolate is quite young, only being affordable to the average person since the 18th century, and then only as a drink. Chocolate eggs began in France and Germany, but they were solid, as eating chocolate was hard to mold. In 1866, the Cadbury Chocolate Company imported a revolutionary press invented by Casparus van Houten of Amsterdam that cut out half the candy's fat content, making a smoother, better-tasting dark chocolate. The press also allowed the company to easily mold its chocolate. The earliest decorated eggs were plain shells enhanced by chocolate piping and marzipan flowers. In 1875, Cadbury released its first line of Easter eggs, which were hollow and filled with sugared almonds. In 1905, Cadbury introduced dairy milk chocolate, which dramatically increased the popularity of Easter eggs. Decorating Easter eggs is believed to date back to at least the 13th century, and originally carried specific symbolism. Historically, Christians would abstain from eating eggs and meat during Lent, and Easter was the first chance to eat eggs after a long period of abstinence. Painting Easter eggs is an especially beloved tradition in the Eastern Catholic and Orthodox churches where the eggs are dyed red, to represent the blood of Christ, and the hard shell represents his tomb. Easter eggs are blessed by the priest at the end of the Paschal Vigil, and distributed to the congregants. Similarly, in Poland, the blessing of decorative basket, with a sampling of Easter eggs and other symbolic foods, is one of the most enduring and beloved traditions on Holy Saturday. In Greece, women traditionally dye the eggs with onion skins and vinegar on Thursday, and sometimes bake them into a braided bread. The dyeing of Easter eggs in different colors is commonplace, with colors originally being achieved by boiling the eggs in natural substances, such as alder bark, walnut shell, or beet juice. A greater variety of color could be achieved by tying the onion skin on with different colors of woolen yarn. Leaves could also be attached to, create patterns. These eggs are part of Easter custom in many areas, and often accompany other traditional Easter foods. Passover halmonados, dyed eggs intended for eating, are prepared in a similar manner. Pysenchy are Ukrainian Easter eggs, decorated using a wax resist or batik method. The word comes from the verb pisati, to write, as the designs are not painted on, but written with beeswax. Decorating batik eggs is also a popular method in such countries as Belarus, Croatia, Hungary, Romania, and many others. Several other specific types of decorated eggs are seen in Ukrainian tradition, from dots to beads to etching, and it predates Christianity in the region. In modern times, the art of the Paisanka was carried abroad by Ukrainian emigrants to North and South America, where the customs took hold while concurrently being banished in Ukraine by the Soviet regime, where it was nearly forgotten. Museum collections were destroyed both by war and by Soviet authorities. Since Ukrainian independence in 1991, there's been a rebirth of this folk art in its homeland and a renewed interest in preserving traditional designs. For the modern ova artiste, you could buy one of the more than 10 million PAS Easter Egg kits that are sold each year and used to decorate as many as 180 million eggs. The kits have been the go-to dye medium for 135 years, first created by New Jersey drugstore owner William Townley. He named his business Paz Dye Company, after the word possum that his Pennsylvania Dutch neighbors used for Easter. At the other end of the market from dye tablets originally selling for five cents are the iconic Faberge eggs. The first imperial Fabergé egg dates back to 1885, when the Russian Tsar Alexander III commissioned an Easter gift for his wife, Empress Maria Federova, from award-winning master goldsmith Peter Carl Fabergé, who was known for crafting fine objects and jewelry, as well as assisting in museum restorations. The egg he created was made of white enamel, which opened to a gold yoke that concealed a small gold hen, which in turn opened to a pendant. Each year thereafter, for three decades, Fabergé would design the Imperial Easter Eggs. When Alexander III died in 1894, his son Nicholas II commissioned two eggs per year, one for his mother Maria, and one for his wife Alexandra. The eggs were each entirely unique and made from a range of materials, from three-colored gold to rock crystal, and always beset with precious stones and gems, like emeralds, pearls, and diamonds. They ranged in size from under 3 inches to over 5 inches tall and could often be opened to reveal a surprise. Each egg took one to two years to create. The final imperial egg, crafted in 1916, reflected the unstable moment in history. The steel military egg, as it was called, was made from shiny steel sitting atop a plinth shaped like bullets. Tsar Nicholas and his family went into exile the following year and were killed the year after. The fifty imperial eggs were looted and transported to Moscow during the Russian Revolution. Many were sold. Ten eventually made their way to Moscow's Kremlin Armory Museum, and eight went missing. In some cases, people sold the eggs' little surprise separately, which is why many of them have been lost. Today, the forty-three known eggs are scattered around the world, with the largest collections being at the Kremlin Armory, the Fabergé Museum in St. Petersburg, and surprisingly, the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts. There are also three at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, and three belong to the British royal family. Here is, for me, the one big question, said Robin Williams. How do you go from crucifixion and resurrection, and then chocolate bunnies colored eggs? Even kids are going, rabbits don't lay eggs, what is this? Well, you don't want kids biting the head off a chocolate Jesus, that's no good. We know why rabbits are in the Eastern Mythos, but how did one of them get tasked with the semi-worldwide egg distribution detail? According to history.com, the Easter Bunny first arrived in America in the 1700s with German immigrants who settled in Pennsylvania and transported their tradition of an egg-laying hare called the Osterhas. Their children made nests in which this creature could lay its colored eggs. Eventually, the custom spread across the US, and the fabled rabbits' Easter morning deliveries expanded to include chocolate and other types of candy and gifts, while decorated baskets replaced nests. The stories of Ostara include a tale wherein the goddess was late bringing spring to the land, and a little bird froze as a result. She found the bird and thawed it out, changing it into a rabbit. It's a short mental step to think the transformed creature might still lay eggs, and unusual ones at that. A lot happens every day. Cut through some of the noise by listening to What's New with Wired, a podcast that provides in-depth coverage on technology and culture. With new episodes released every weekday, you can catch up on all the major events you missed, from AI developments to business updates to new scientific theories. It helps you make sense of what's happening in the world. Plus, each episode is usually pretty short. You can easily squeeze it in on your way to work or during a lunch break. So stay updated with the award-winning journalism from Wired. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. We're the All Creatures Podcast. Each week, Angie and I explore and share amazing details about the many animals we share our world with. Plus, Chris and I are both PhD scientists, and educators. So we do the deep dives in the scientific research and then come back and share what we learn in a fun and casual way. We also speak with other scientists, animal experts, activists, and many other conservation enthusiasts from all over the planet. So you can find the All Creatures Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. A basket of Easter goodies would be woefully incomplete without at least one marshmallow peep. These chicks, then bunnies, eggs, and all manner of shapes, have been with us since 1953, when the Just Born Chocolate Company, founded by Russian emigree Sam Born, bought the Rada Candy Company, which was already producing a form of marshmallow chick. Originally made by hand, each batch of peeps took 27 hours to create. Thanks to mechanization and automation, each batch now takes about six minutes allowing the company to pump out over 5 million every day. One downside of automation is that the chicks lost the little wings they had originally, as the design was too complex for the machines. An estimated one-third of Peeps purchased are not eaten, but used as decorations or in craft projects. There is even a Peep diorama competition, where entrants use the candy critters to recreate movie scenes, tell elaborate jokes, or boast scathing sugar satire it's definitely worth Googling. Peeps are made from a marshmallow slurry, not from melting down marshmallows, as some people may assume. Marshmallow itself is named for a swamp growing plant, the marshmallow. The roots of the mallow produce a slime, not unlike that in okra, which was used to treat sore throats. To get children to take their medicine, it was added to egg white and sweetener and whipped. While modern marshmallows boast no curative powers, This reporter always feels better for eating one. But we digress. And now for a special segment we call Quick-Fire Catholicism Misconceptions. Speaking of conceptions, many people mistakenly refer to the Immaculate Conception as the conception of Jesus Christ. While his conception was without sin, the Immaculate Conception actually refers to Mary, Jesus' mother. Mary, as the future mother of the Messiah, needed to be free of sin so she was filled with grace from the get-go. The Immaculate Conception is not a virgin birth. Catholics believe Mary was conceived in the old-fashioned way, but that God made her immune to the default, original sin, and ensured that it was not in her nature to sin on her own. A Catholic Bible contains more books than a Protestant Bible, leading some to assume that Catholics added to theirs. The reverse is actually true. In the 16th century, Martin Luther and the Reformers moved certain books to an appendix before they were ultimately taken out. Luther wanted to remove more books, including the Book of Revelations, but was unsuccessful. Priests can never have children. Everybody knows that, right? As they say, exceptions make the rule. Children can be grandfathered in, as it were. While an ordained priest isn't allowed to take a wife or father children, If a man has a family before he is ordained, you end up with a priest with kids. There are even Catholic priests who have gotten divorced. Side note, in Eastern Orthodoxy, priests are allowed to marry, but married priests cannot rise to be bishop. Despite the pantheon of saints and the prominence of Mary in Catholic dogma, Catholics don't actually worship these non-creator beings. Worship of the Creator is called Latria and giving this type of worship to anyone or anything else would be considered the sin of idolatry. There is also hyperdulia, the adoration reserved for Mary, and dulia, the reverence for saints and angels. On the topic of angels, if you're picturing fat baby cupids or winged warriors with flowing hair like romance novel cover models, brace yourself for a serious bubble bursting. The seraphim aren't really described in the Bible, outside of the fact that they have six wings, but only use one set for flying. The other sets are used to cover their face and feet. The cherubim also had extra wings, in this case four total, to go with their four faces. Only one face was human. The others were that of a lion, ox, and eagle. They were also covered in eyes and had feet like a cat's hoof. One choir of angels, called thrones, are in the form of two wheels, one inside the other, each covered with hundreds of eyes. Catholics believe the Pope is infallible, right? That depends on what he's talking about. The Catholic Church defines three conditions under which the Pope is infallible. The Pope must be making a decree on matters of faith or morals. The Declaration must be binding on the whole Church and the Pope must be speaking with the full authority of the papacy, and not in a personal capacity. So if the Pope is discussing art, science, or where to get the best Philly cheesesteak – it's Jim's on South Street, by the way – he's free to be as wrong as anyone else. Don't like Catholicism because it's anti-science? Then I've got good news! Not only do Catholics not, as a rule, eschew science, the person who set forth the theory that would come to be referred to as the Big Bang was a priest. Although Edwin Hubble, for whom the Space Telescope would be named, played the crucial role in proving the notion that the universe is expanding, the idea originated with George Lemaitre, a prolific Belgian astronomer, physicist, and devout Roman Catholic priest. Einstein's general theory of relativity, proposed in 1917, which hypothesized a finite-sized static universe with no beginning, was the widely accepted cosmological theory. In 1929, after a decade of study, Lemaitre published a paper in which he argued that Einstein's calculations actually proved that the universe is expanding, and that these calculations hinted at the possibility that, prior to the appearance of our universe, all matter, energy, and mass in the universe were contained within a single point he called the primeval atom. Many people might expect that the religious authorities reacted negatively to a priest being heavily involved in the scientific research on the origins of our universe. However, whereas Einstein's finite-sized universe didn't correspond to the Catholic view on cosmology because it implied the universe had no beginning, Lemaitre's theory appealed to the Church because it implied that something existed prior to our universe and some kind of force was needed to create it from the primeval atom. Easter candy and decorations go up in stores before the Valentine's Day display has even come down. But can you find a decent Seder plate? Or any grocer clever enough to stock horseradish, matzah, and Manischewitz together? Oh, did you forget about Passover? Yeah, you and the rest of the Goyim. Passover, or Pesach, is one of the biggest Jewish holidays, celebrated by 70% of American Jews according to a 2013 Pew survey. It commemorates the biblical story of the ancient Hebrews' liberation from slavery in Egypt. Remember your Sunday school lessons about the ten plagues, the death of the firstborn, Moses parting the Red Sea? That stuff. The main feature of Passover is the Seder Dinner. It's organized around telling the Passover story, and it's an opportunity for Jews to connect themselves with their history, to think more consciously about those who are still oppressed today, and to hope that people everywhere will know freedom. Because Passover is celebrated entirely at home rather than at temple, it means individual families have a lot of leeway to create their own Passover traditions. The exact dates vary from year to year because it's based on the traditional Jewish lunar calendar rather than the Gregorian calendar. This is also why Easter, unlike other holidays, floats around on the calendar. Easter falls during or immediately after Passover, depending on which church you're in, because the New Testament says that was when Jesus was crucified. That's also why the Last Supper is speculated to have been a Seder dinner. Kosher, from the Hebrew word for proper or pure, is the system of dietary rules in Judaism. You probably know some of them. No pork, no shellfish, no cooking meat and dairy together. The rules become more strict during Passover. Going kosher for Passover means no hamits or bread products, apart from the Seder Matzah, a cracker that recalls the Jews in Egypt having to flee before their bread could rise. Ashkenazi, the Jews of Eastern Europe and their descendants, may also refrain from legumes, beans, peas, rice, millet, corn, and seeds. Sephardic Jews, those from the Iberian Peninsula, typically don't observe that restriction. Small portions of ritually symbolic foods are arranged on a special Seder plate which looks a bit like a deviled egg plate with fewer divots. The steps of Seder dinner are guided by a book called the Haggadah. Here's a brief rundown. The Kiddush, the person leading things, often the eldest member of the family, says a blessing, followed by a ritual washing of the hands. A vegetable, often parsley, is dipped in salt water and eaten. This step combines the hopefulness of spring, represented by the green vegetable, with the tears of slavery, the salt water. A matzah cracker is broken, and the story of the exodus from Egypt is told. This story begins with the youngest person at the Seder asking the four questions, the Ma Nishtana. How is this night different from all other nights? On all other nights, we eat hametz and matzah. Why on this night, only matzah? On all other nights, we eat all vegetables. Why on this night, only maror, which means bitter herb? On all other nights, we don't dip even once. Why on this night do we dip twice? There is a second washing of the hands, this time done with a blessing, since you're about to eat more substantial food. Matzah is eaten, then a maror, or bitter herb, to taste the bitterness of slavery. Horseradish is commonly used in America for this step. Little sandwiches are made out of matza and the bitter herb, then from matzah, maror, and haroset a sweet chopped dish usually made with apples, nuts, cinnamon, and grape juice. Then it's time for the main meal, which traditionally includes matzah ball soup, hard-boiled eggs, gefilte fish, meat and vegetable, and macaroons. A grace after meal, the Berchat Hamazan, is said, and the Psalms are recited. The last prayer ends with, and please bear with me here, Hebrew speakers, Ayashana Chabai birushalayim next year may we be in jerusalem while the christian children hunt for easter eggs the kinder have the often common early in the seder a piece of matzah is broken in two and the larger piece is wrapped in a napkin and hidden somewhere in the house after the meal the children search for it once it's found everyone shares a bite and in many families the child who found it gets a small prize that shared matzah is the final thing eaten in the seder meal Did I mention that having a drink with dinner is not only permissible, it's part of the Haggadah? Grown-ups are meant to drink a cup of wine with the first blessing, with the story of Exodus, with the after-meal grace, and with the Psalms. If you can't handle four whole glasses, it's okay to just take sips. Regular bread is not allowed during Passover because it is the product of grain and water, which also means beer and many liquors are treif, or not kosher. While some distillers had started making kosher spirits, potato vodka is in the clear, no pun intended, since it didn't begin with grain. For this reporter's money, though, you can't beat good old juice box-tasting Manischewitz. Manischewitz kosher wine doesn't actually come from the Manischewitz company. They licensed their name to Monarch Wines in the 1940s. The men behind Monarch saw a gap in the market as more and more Jewish immigrants settled in New York but had difficulty finding kosher wine. The original Concord grape wine is so trademarkedly sweet because of quality issues with grape harvests in the early years. The wine was coming out bitter, so the company began adding sugar. The brand went from exclusive to one ethnic group to widespread public consciousness in the 1960s with the Mano Manischewitz ad campaign starring Sammy Davis Jr. Not every variety of Manischewitz is kosher for Passover, though. Anything sweetened with corn syrup would be trafe, since corn is a grain, so be sure to read the bottle. If you've enjoyed this section on The Chosen People, I'd recommend all the good shixes and shaggots check out the website JewFAQ.com, the sadly now defunct podcast Stuff Jews Should Know, and possibly the greatest channel ever put on YouTube, Old Jews Telling Jokes. It is exactly what it says, and it's magnificent. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. Traditions are a funny thing. They're made by people, and as people change, so do their traditions. It's not strictly necessary to know why your family does a certain thing on a certain day. If it's important to you, then it's important. Do you have any fun Easter or Passover traditions in your family? Leave a comment if you're listening on a platform that takes comments, or hop over to facebook.com slash yourbrainonfacts.com Thanks for spending part of your day with me, and happy holidays.